Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, and I am your chief investigator of images. Exciting day today. Beautiful blue, blue, blue skies. I'm in London, in a park, with the wonderful Professor Sarah Churchwell. Hello. Hello. How are you? Thanks for bringing me to a park. I know. This is not what I expected. It's so much nicer than sitting in a studio. (laughs) We've got some nice background graffiti and there's an essence drilling, Some drilling in the distance, but we'll we'll soldier on. (laughs) We'll soldier on. We have got a very exciting chat to have, have today. I've been so excited about getting you on The Art Detective because... I love the way your mind works. Firstly, you should introduce yourself. What's your full title? Oh, my full title will take up most of the podcast. I know, it is a nice long one. (laughs) I am the Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities and a Professor of American Literature at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. Breathe. It's a lot of words. (laughs) It's an amazing title. So yeah, you you have an exciting interdisciplinary Mm. role, but your role is also about outreach, it's about engagement, and trying to engage people with the humanities generally. Exactly. And to, to remind people that in a world that where we are constantly reminded of the importance of the sciences, which I would be the last person to deny, of course the sciences are important, but it seems very peculiar to me that we live in a, in a context in which people would argue that the humanities aren't important, like we can do without history, or we can do without the study of languages, or we can do without the... It just <laughs> seems to be totally peculiar. So yeah. I'm out there beating that drum a lot. I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'll back you up. But no, I think it's really important, um, and, and it's something that the Art Detective Podcast tries to do as well, which is um, to think about the humanities more generally and Mm. how they intersect Mm. how they interconnect so your primary research area is literature isn't it yes but a lot of what I do broadens out into history quite quickly and um, so where I really sort of sit is in um, cultural history but where that intersects with language and literature um, in in various kinds of ways and so from one perspective the books I've written sound very very different the first book I wrote was about Marilyn Monroe the Mm. second book I wrote was about Scott Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby and the, the most recent book I've written is about the history of the phrases the American dream and America first and those might sound like you know really disparate subjects but they're actually all about the American dream in 
one sense. They're all about American cultural history. They're all about American myths. And they're all about the relationship between language and storytelling and how we understand our culture and our history. So I'm always sort of sitting in that space. And also how visual culture plays such a huge Absolutely. part in interpreting our, our relationship with the past. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, in, Mar- in the case of Marilyn Monroe, she yeah. is iconic. Absolutely. And of course, she's iconic both in film and in still imagery. And the relationship between that is um, is a really important part of the way that her iconicity works. Mm. I, I, I mean, it, it all appeals to me, particularly <laughs> coming from a literature background into art history. Uh, but I was very excited today because when I said, what do you want to do? You came back immediately with a hit list of some of my favourite things, particularly the poetry of E. e. Cummings, mm. which I wanted to be a poet on the back of reading Cummings because I just love his work, but I also mm. love his uh, maverick approach to mm. pronunciation, capitalization, and the relationship between uh, typography, yeah. the text on the page, and how you see it yeah. in terms of how you read. He's kind of painting with words a lot of the time, and what he wants to do is create visual imagery out of the words, and even out of letter combinations as well, um, which we can talk about in one of the poems we're going to um, look at today. And so it's... Um, so. I think he was part of a, 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 an era of a time um, and, a, and a culture where people were being very playful about the relationship um, and very experimental about the relationship among the senses and among the arts and how the arts might convey different kinds of sensory experiences and express different kinds of ideas through different sorts of sensory approaches. Absolutely. And, and the senses are coming through very heavily in the things you've chosen to mm. talk about because uh, you, you know, there's the idea of the relationship between colour, sound. Mm. He paints a painting called sound. Yeah, so one of the things people don't often don't realize that Cummings was himself also a painter. Um, he was experimenting with abstract expressionism, you know, very early on. Very early. And I, in I the mean, 20s. And it's a, it's an extraordinary painting sound, isn't it? Because yeah. it's um, it's very bold, very bright, very abstract, mm. uh, full of color, and it's actually 1919. I mean, it's, it's seriously early. It's incredibly early. And, you know, this is a point at which George O'Keefe is starting to, to paint in abstracts. Um, people don't think of abstraction as t- having taken hold in America this early, but it absolutely had. And, you know, Cummings isn't a great painter. I don't think anybody would make the case that he that he made a mistake in abandoning painting for art. <laughs> I mean, for art, for poetry. Um, but it's still very interesting to see here the way that his mind works, that he's trying to see if you can capture sound in color, if you can capture sound in the texture of painting and that's something that a lot of artists of the period were experimenting with and thinking about Gertrude Stein was trying to do what Cezanne did with painting in sentences Mm -hmm. Um, and they were all thinking about this relationship between um, uh, between all as I say all of the senses really with synesthesia with trying to express different ideas through different sounds um, so you get even things like um, William Carlos Williams, who of course is a is a poet who's very interested in color. Um, his famous uh, most famous poem probably is the Red Wheelbarrow, but um, but who also says things like no ideas but in things. Yeah. But of course he says that in words, not in a thing. And so they're all playing with those paradoxes about how do you how do you best put various kinds of ideas and various kinds of sensory experiences across. And it was something that that um, infused. 
a, a, an enormous amount of American art of the period. It's even in places where people don't expect it, like in The Great Gatsby, um, which is in many ways a prose poem. And it is a novel that's dripping with synesthesia. It's one of the reasons why it has such a magical effect on readers, because Fitzgerald is constantly bending the sensory experiences in it and creating the surreal, heightened, fantastic, hyper-realistic, um, not hyper-realistic, whatever the opposite of hyper-realistic is, surrealistic. Yeah. Um, but uh, constantly distorting what you think um, the, uh, the, the sensory combinations ought to be. So one of the most famous phrases in the book when he's describing one of Gatsby's parties is yellow cocktail music. Right. right? So can music be yellow? Well, it can. Of course it can. Fitzgerald made it so. Absolutely. And, that's, and so there, you know, you've got Fitzgerald doing yellow cocktail music in 1925. You've got Cummings painting sound in 1919. And, and these kinds of ideas are, are playing through a lot of the artists of the period. Well, it's absolutely fascinating how they're all encountering um, the abstract movement through mm. these sensory experiences, through synesthesia in particular. I was delighted that you suggested the Charles de Muth I saw figure five in gold, mm. which I absolutely love. So 1928. Um, now, I got really quite excited when I was reading up on Demuth because he's this, he's the founder of precisionism, mm -hmm. which um, it's the first indigenous modern art movement in the US, isn't it? Yeah. But it is a sort of cubist, realist, it's all about <laughs> verticality, it's all about I suppose the idea of America growing upwards, mm. um, thrusting upwards. Mm -hmm. It's It's got elements of the sort of futurists yeah that's absolutely um, but but say so why does that appeal to you that particular artwork well I really like the um, I really like the well this particular painting is um, is an iconic work of art and, and we should say that um, it's right now in a, a wonderful exhibition at the Ashmolean in Oxford um, called America's Cool Modernism and it is uh, features this painting um, and, and several other paintings that have never left the United States before so it's a, a really really amazing exhibition and everybody Seriously should go see good. it Exhibition. But also because this painting, and we'll come back to the point about uh, precisionism more broadly in a second, but um, one of the reasons to go there is because this painting is one of those paintings that, um, that where reproductions, no matter how high quality, simply don't do it justice. Yeah, well, I mean, we're in front of a reproduction yeah. here. Um, it, just describing it to the listeners, but it, it's, it's, I mean, what, it's a, it's a po poster, mm -hmm. but it's what is described as a poster portrait. Yes. Where... No actual portraiture is taking place no, here. No. There is no figure it's a portrait or portrait of the number five. <laughs> it's a portrait of the number five. And, and I mean, you and I, I know we both have a slight obsession with typography. And, <laughs> you know, we could get very excited about the, the arrangement of space, the representation of the number. But fill in the context of why yeah. this is a portrait. Well, so th there's a lot going on in this painting, right? So it's actually, there's an, a number, of, so it's called I Saw the Figure Five in Gold. And the, the number five in it is indeed in gold. So he painted it in real gold. And that's one of the reasons why reproductions don't it justice and you have to see the, the glowing gold and it just kind of pulsates mm. what he does is there's a giant five in the foreground but then there are receding fives in the background and what that does is it, it and then those are organized in front of um, what is recognizably a kind of urban nightscape again with those thrusting figures that you were talking about that sense of skyscrapers and of a city mushrooming up out of the ground mm. but at night and then there are these pulsating fives in front of it you you could be looking at an advertisement mm. um, you could be looking at a Chanel number no. five poster Chanel if you're listening, absolutely do not touch this. Don't go anywhere near it. <laughs> you're not um, having it. You can't have it, but um, but you could be. Um, and of, you could be looking at Warhol, right? I mean, you're, and this is 1928. You're looking at what lo what looks recognizably like pop art, um, you know, decades before you would expect decades to see decades. it. 28. This 28. 40, 40, 40 years, years before. before. 
And one of the things that um, Demuth does in this painting is that he he creates this set, this um, t you know as so many great paintings do, but it is very much a, a painting about the tension between movement and stasis. And so you have this feeling that the fives could be moving forward in a, in a cinematic way. You can feel them zooming. I, I mean, almost like you know Looney Tunes or something when Bugs Bunny jumps out yes. of the you know. I mean, you get this real so feeling of animation exactly, yeah. um, and a mise en abeam that's receding endlessly into the into the background in the sense that it's pulsating, that it's moving back and forth and kind of throbbing with the lights or strobing with passing streetlights. But this is not only a portrait of the glowing number five and of a cityscape, a, a sense of New York, a nocturne, um, an urban nocturne um, with this uh, sense of advertisement and um, the, the, the new urban culture that is emerging. You could be looking at Broadway lights. You could be looking at vaudeville. Um, but it's also inspired by a poem that um, Demon's friend William Carlos Williams wrote, which was called The Great Figure. And one of the things that's fun about this is that, of course, there's a great tradition um, known as ekphrastic poetry in which poetry is inspired by painting. Um, the most famous, or, or sorry, other works of art by the plastic arts. So um, the most famous is probably Keats's Ode to a Grecian Urn, but also one thinks of Auden's Musée de Beaux-Arts or any number of very, very familiar examples. And Demuth is doing something fun here, which is that he's flipping that on its head. Absolutely. And he's, and he's painting, um, creating a painting that's inspired by a poem. <laughs> so this poem is called The Great Figure by William Carlos Williams. And Williams said later that it was inspired by a moment he was, he was as I'm sure most of your listeners know, Williams was a doctor by day and he wrote poetry in his spare time. And he was um, leaving the lab after a long, hard day at work, and he was going to visit a friend for a drink. And just as he was about to you know, ring the doorbell um, at night in the rain, he suddenly became conscious in his peripheral vision of this giant gold number five racing <laughs> past him, and it was on a red fire truck. Yeah. Um, and, he, and he just had this, it was imagism, right? It was, um, it was like Ezra Pound. It was this sense that there was this, um, this kind of strobing, throbbing gold five just yeah. hurtling toward him out of the darkness. Yeah. And, um, and it inspired a very great short poem called The Great Figure, which is, which should, should I read it? It's Absolutely, very short. it's from his Sour Grapes, isn't it? And yeah. it's uh, 21, I think, From 1921. Yeah, it's a brilliant poem. Um, very brief. Among the rain and lights, I saw the figure five in gold on a red fire truck, moving, tense, unheeded, to gong clangs, siren howls and wheels rumbling through the dark city. Now, one of the things that we were talking about, the placement of poems on the page, and one of the things that's interesting about this poem is that the word moving, so each of those, um, these the key words he just puts on a line alone. Yeah, um, that's the, the center point, isn't moving it? Moving is the center point. Mm. It's, the, it's the pivot in the middle of the poem, and the sense of moving at the center is followed by tense. And so moving tense, and clearly that, the, that juxtaposition of words um, inspired Demuth because what you get is at the center of his poem is a tension between movement and stasis in the figure five in gold. And so he's playing with the ideas in images that uh, Williams is playing with in words, but Williams is playing with imagism. And so they're all there. So there's just a lot of there's a very playful exchange about ideas and words and color and movement um, and how how do you best express an image. Absolutely. And I think what's so powerful about both the poem and the artwork is the idea that it's trying to capture so many different senses all at once. Mm. It's the, the visual experience of the red and then the sound, the, the clanging you mm -hmm. know, noise of the fire engine. Um, so they're obviously 
actually exploring their senses and the idea that, how do you feel, predominantly using literary sources, do you feel that actually there's always a point at which language can't express and then the visual can step in. Uh, <laughs> this is I, me being a yeah, superior exactly, historian. Exactly. <laughs> I am not going to concede the inherent superiority yes. of the visual. Absolutely not. Uh, I will not. Uh, I will go to the depth on this one. This is the hill I'm going to wow, die this is, on. This is, this is wrestling stuff now. <laughs> um, no, look, I think that, uh, look, first of all, I am um, I'm passionate about words. I, I'm, I've always been a word geek. They're the things that excite me the most. Um, if anything, I will say that there are all kinds of ideas that can't be expressed visually, yeah. um, and um, or certainly not with the subtlety that language can bring. Um, but but I do think it's exciting to to have this kind of interplay, where you have great artists exploring the limits of representation in any of the, any given medium, mm. and figuring out how to actually. I mean, I <laughs> I tend to be a more is more kind of person, <laughs> um, and you know if there are th- if there are two things that I like, I tend to like them both at the same time. Absolutely, so, sensory so, glass. You know exactly. The, really, the more <laughs> the merrier um, and so you know if you've got a great painting and a great poem side by side well you know then the party you know absolutely party for the senses but also they're deliberately meant to be side by side that's the other thing I think is so exciting about this relationship and, I mean, and they did, were friends they were friends he did a series of six of these these portrait posters yeah. but they're they weren't very well received at the time I think mm-hmm. people no. thought what the hell are you doing <laughs> how is a number five a portrait <laughs> yeah. of William yeah. Carlos Williams but they were relation, people he had relationships with he also did O'Keefe didn't mm-hmm. he he did and it was it was a, as I say it was a time when they were, there were there were groups and movements there were all of these people you know we think again we think of that as a European um, uh, kind of practice but it was certainly happening in New York at the time as well and in other parts of America and people think of O'Keefe as being in the southwest but she wasn't yet at this point. She was in New York. She was painting New York urban cityscapes. Mm. She was painting wonderful pictures of skyscrapers. Um, so really, really beautiful studies of the um, Shelton Hotel. Um, these really kind of, uh, uh, and again, things you could picture on, like, you know, now we would imagine something like that on the cover of The New Yorker. It's mm. the kind of stylized, um, you know, 20s, uh, um, you know, uh, and we were talking about precisionism mm. earlier, these, these very geometric forms and this interest in technology and in urban... Uh, culture and in the way that that was transforming the American landscape um, and the beauty that can be found in these geometric forms, um, the ways in which um, the principles of abstraction can be used to represent um, the, you know, it can, can be used to, to move into figuration and into figurative um, representation is something that, again, they were all playing with. But then you have somebody like O'Keefe's partner, or eventual husband, Stieglitz, Alfred Stieglitz, who's the great photographer but also a promoter of modern art, who was himself, again, an abstract painter. He destroyed most of his own paintings when he decided to devote himself um, uh, uniquely to, to photography. But a few of his abstracts survive. One of them, indeed, is, again, in this Ashmolean exhibition, another reason to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, all, they were all experimenting with similar kinds of conversations. And then you have people like the, the critic, at, um, a, an important critic at the time called Gilbert Seldes, who wrote a book called The Seven Lively Arts in 1924, where he was trying to think about the relationship among them all. He was writing about jazz, mm. talking about that, uh, trying to take that seriously as an art form, and one of the first critics to do that. Um, he, was, uh, he was one of the first to take film seriously, um, again, as, as a potential art form in the 20s, before you know, people were thinking of it just 
as mostly as popular entertainment. And so you have critics starting to say, well, what is the conversation that's happening among all of the arts? Um, and, and that can happen both as a conversation between different artists working in different media and in different modes, but it can also happen with the same artist exper experimenting with their own ability to, to move among those modes. And so um, it's just a very, it's a very rich and exciting and vibrant experimental time that people, I think, don't um, sufficiently appreciate. And and for me, I'm a, I just love color, like mm. in the most naive kind of way. <laughs> I just like things with lots of color. Yeah. I just really, really do. <laughs> they make me happy and the brighter, the better. <laughs> I just love it. I think, I mean, I think that the color is coming. The color is so important with mm. this precision, but it's also, it's about structure. It it's is. about shapes. And, and I love the analogy you made there with, with, you know, the idea this is the jazz age. This is mm. jazz yeah. is, is in the backdrop to all of this. Absolutely. And what is jazz if it's not sort of structured experimentations in sound. Absolutely. So a jazz age, but it's a time where America is booming, uh, before the Great Depression, of course. Um, it, what else is happening politically and, in, and economically <laughs> and environmentally that is creating this vibrancy? Well, I a mean, lot. It, yeah, a lot, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it was, um, I mean, well, polit <laughs> politically, how long have you got? Um, it was um, it was actually a Republican decade, but it was but it was very um, business friendly, laissez-faire, uh, which was what created the boom. The boom was really a bubble, um, but at the time they all had this sense that it was ever expanding. And um, as Gordon Brown would later say, you know, they all felt that the that the days of boom and bust were over, and that mm -hmm. there was this endless expansion that was going to happen. Because boom this, and bust never really happens, does it? No, exactly. <laughs> it's just boom. It's yeah, just endless. It's always boom. boom. But so that is what they. A lot of people did think that, and they seemed to be, you know, they seemed to just be minting money, and mm -hmm. you know, every. Thing that you did was exciting, but there was also a sense at this time um, that is very much captured in in the letters of the great writers. For example, um, certainly Scott Fitzgerald writes about this um, in the very early twenties. This sense that America's century had come, mm. um, they sensed it. They could, they a lot of them could feel that. Um, that something exciting was happening and um, and that America, which in the 19th century had really had an inferiority complex artistically and aesthetically in relationship to uh, Europe. You think of somebody like Henry James leaving America because of this sense that it was a, it was just a backwater. It was just a inimical, hostile environment to art. And if you wanted to be an artist, you had to be in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and then by the 20s, there's this sense of, wait a minute, maybe we can do this. And, and a sense that indigenous art forms were emerging out of America, jazz being an important one, although they were still arguing about whether jazz was properly an art form, um, but that conversation, even to have the debate, is important and, and gets the whole um, gets the whole ball rolling. And similarly about film, debating whether cinema is going to be an art form, but again, this feeling that that's an indigenous American art form, that things were happening. And could you translate that into literature? Could you write a properly American poetry? Um, you know, instead of it, you know, they all grew up memorizing Longfellow, but instead of you know the galloping verse of the balladeer, can you actually? take these ideas of abstraction, of, of the, the experiments that Pound and Elliot were doing in Europe with imagism, um, and, and can, you, can you bring that back home, and can you find a way to express uh, American ideas, or American aspirations, or American uh, debates, or American um, problems, um, conflicts? Can you find ways to express these using the techniques that you've adapted from Europe, from the old world, but can you bring them to bear on new world ideas and new world energies? Because we've got artists moving, we've got mm -hmm. artists traveling and encountering, and they're going Absolutely. and encountering um, abstraction and all the various cubist approaches that are taking place in Europe. But when they bring them back, there is color, optimism, and 
thrust yeah, in those absolutely. images and that energy, are completely different to the European uh, Absolutely. And you could call a lot of these images, the word jazzy would leap to mind. Definitely. I mean, they are jazzy. They feel like they're improvisational. They feel like they're a little bit loud. They feel like they're, you know, you could be <laughs> in a nightclub. You feel like you've got all of that kind of urban energy and that and that sense of teeming vigor um, and kind of raw, rude energy. Absolutely. Um, but this sense that, you know, maybe we can make something beautiful out of this as well. Um, and of course, there was a lot of um, political um, critique in the art of the time, uh, too. I mean, we've been focusing on, on abstractions and on um, um, uh, urban, you know, cityscapes and things. But there are, but there are plenty of um, artists of the period in America who were um, making very, uh, um, very angry um, political critiques. In, fa in fact, that actually brings us on to the satirical mm. image that you suggested we look at. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Which, um, I absolutely adore this. Right, what are we looking at? So this is called Daughters of Revolution. It's by mm. Grant Wood, um, more, most famous and more famous for his painting American Gothic, which absolutely everybody knows. And that was painted in 1930. And, it, and that is also a satirical painting, although people don't people often don't, well, realize he it. Says, he says it's not satirical, I know, doesn't he? But it is. He? But but it it is lying. So never satirical. trust an artist. Never trust an artist describing their own work. They always lie. They're big liars. Of course it's satirical. <laughs> lying liars who lie. <laughs> but to familiarize the listeners, it's yeah. the very iconic image. Yes. White American house in the background, a bull, a farmer, farmer holding a, a pitchfork, pitchfork with a three-pronged pitchfork, and then his sister modeling and, this sort of very nineteenth-century uh, dress, isn't ex it? Exactly. Mm. And so the, the 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 satire in American Gothic registers really in the title. So um, so the idea there, they would use the word Gothic the way we might use the word medieval. No offense. Um, <laughs> 
as um, if you use it I'm colloquially, it, exactly. if you use it colloquially to say, oh my God, that was practically medieval, right? To be so old fashioned that it was medieval, right? My God, was that from the dark ages? And they would use the Gothic in <laughs> the same now, way. Leave it out, leave it out. But they did, right? <laughs> of course. So, so, so Gothic, so is, gothic their is, is one of their equivalents. So, so backwardness. So exactly, or, or just so hopelessly old fashioned. Mm. Um, and so the, um, but also Grant Wood studied in Europe. So as you, as you were saying a minute ago, these are artists who actually study in Europe and bring the techniques back home. Mm. And Grant Wood became an expert in the Flemish style of painting, mm. which was also known as Gothic painting. Exactly. He was really influenced by, uh, I think it was Van Eyck, but I was really interested because I, looking into him, he, he dabbled with Impressionism. Mm. He liked French mm. Impressionism. But then it was the Dutch school that he yeah. went to. And you can see it. You can see, see the brushstrokes. You can see the finish that he's he's getting that inspiration he from is, but he's, medieval Gothic. He's know, punning, Dutch. right? It's a pun. Totally. So the idea of it being, of this painting being American Gothic registers on many levels. The couple is Gothic because they're backwards in an age of industrialism. They're on this farm. So just as America is is moving into everything is steel and shiny and we've been talking about that kind of, you know, urban technology. And here's this old fashioned couple holding a pet pitchfork. <laughs> but he's also, um, he has, a, there's a Gothic window in the farmhouse. So he's playing with the idea of Gothic on many levels. And that's where the satire registers. He's not necessarily satirizing the couple, mm. um, but he's satirizing the idea that the heartland is a Gothic space. Um, and, and, so and this is a reflection of the backwardsness of the, uh, the uh, some of the American states at a time when cityscapes were popping up and, and, and threatening. Exactly. So the idea that he, and this, he was being satirical about, so he came from Iowa, right? The American heartland, what is now called flyover country. I get to say that because I'm from Chicago, which is just up the road. <laughs> and um, and so we, we all are outraged at the idea that this is flyover country. Um, although Chicago is <laughs> an anomaly, but anyway, we don't have time to get into that. But the point is Grant Wood came from Iowa and he did love of Iowa. And so what he was doing was satirizing the idea that Iowa was necessarily backward or that to be on a farm was necessarily backward. Um, and so he also has more pastoral, um, some actually very beautiful pastoral landscapes. And then as he was working through the Depression, he started to really try to represent what was happening um, to the um, American uh, landscape in the, you know, the environmental catastrophe that uh, was created by the Dust Bowl. But he has these kind of um, nostalgic images hearkening back to, um, to a greener time and to a kind of, you know, pastoral um, Jeffersonian idol of, um, of, you know, rolling farms and, and um, hills. Yeah, because there is a, it's, a, it's a tension in his work, isn't there? Because he, he dresses his figures deliberately in an archaic way. Yep. He's using old outfits. And, and the image that we're looking at in yes. front of us, which is called Daughters of the Revolution. Daughters of Revolution. Daughters yeah. of the Revolution, um, which again, you know, it, it, there is a deliberate archaism yeah, there, in the costume. There certainly is. But he's what he's getting now. This one is satirical. Yeah. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. This he, one is. He even says yeah, it this is, is definitely satirical. <laughs> um, and so this this is a picture of um, three old women. Um, it's gender politics are not necessarily progressive. Um, the, the women are, um, they're marked as old, right? So they've got buns, um, their hair is pulled back tightly, their faces are screwed up, they've got tight mouths, they've got tight eyes, they all look very, very unpleasant. Um, and they also look very pleased with themselves. So he Smug. really captures this very self-satisfied mm. women. And they are standing in front of an iconic painting by Gilbert Stuart, which everybody has seen. Even, you don't have to be American to have seen this one, I promise you you've all seen it, of Washington, Washington crossing, crossing the Delaware. Delaware. And um, one of the women in the foreground is very delicately holding a blue willow china teacup, which is clearly an heirloom that she's very pleased with. And this is where we see Wood bringing in the Flemish techniques again. He gets the, the porcelain perfectly here. Um, and, the, and the delicacy of it is really quite wonderful. But 
what what he's doing here is he's juxtaposing the self-satisfaction and the and the obvious conservatism and arrogance. And we should say these women are white. This is an important part of what um, Wood is up to in the social commentary, uh, political commentary that he's making in this painting. Um, so these white women are. Um, Daughters of Revolution. Now, this is a reference to a real thing called the Daughters of the American Revolution, which is um, a kind of quasi-aristocratic society in America, which says that if you are the descendant of somebody who fought in the American Revolution on the right side, mind you, you cannot have fought in the American Revolution on the side of the British <laughs> and be a daughter of the American Revolution. Um, which can I do a little personal note here, which of is quite course. funny. So um, my family, we actually are entitled to be daughters of the American Revolution. We choose not to join the society because it's a very obnoxious society. By and large, apologies to anybody who's a nice person who's a member of that society, <laughs> but it does a lot of really nasty stuff. Okay. Um, they and they, um, particularly at the time, they were they were um, quite influential and they're very exclusionary. They were um, by and large they were quite racist. And so the whole point is that it was creating an aristocracy exactly. in America. In, the, in um, what is supposedly and was supposed republic. to be a republic. <laughs> And that was what Wood was taking issue with. So, um, but what he does, which is so clever, and again, you see that his sense of humor in his titles, is he drops the American for, for an important reason, which is that what he really wants to do is he's not mocking anything that's about America as such here. He's mocking the idea that these are daughters of revolution, mm. um, that these conservative, nasty, um, smug women who think that they're important because of who their ancestors were and what their ancestors did, um, that they've inherited some kind of status and some kind of privilege um, and some kind of heroism even. Um, he's juxtaposing that against the actual heroism of Washington and his troops crossing the Delaware, the idea that these deeply are these arch reactionary conservative women are somehow pleased with themselves for being revolutionary and is the what he's poking fun at. Po they're they're absolutely mm. reactionary. And mm. so he's poking fun at that juxtaposition by putting them in front of Washington crossing the Delaware and getting at their total um, unawareness, their complete um, insensitivity to the fact that they could not be more lacking in the very <laughs> attributes that they think they're mythologizing. Absolutely. And, and I, there's another subtext to this mm -hmm. which I was reading about, which is, um, I mean, it, I should date the painting. It's 1932. And um, what, what I was reading about was that uh, Wood had actually been commissioned to make a glass, a stained glass window in Cedar Springs, where he's from. But and uh, he was going to use German glass, yeah. and it was the DUR that actually um, the DAR, DAR sorry, yeah. that um, said no. That, yeah. because you can't use German glass <laughs> yeah. because the Germans were in because the war. We're, because we're anti-German here, and that's exactly it, right. They were they were nativist and they were xenophobic. They were mm. anti-immigration and they were working hard. Um, so there's some topicality here. Some of these debates should sound familiar, mm -hmm. and they were working hard to argue that they were superior to other uh, more recently arrived Americans because they were descended from the people who fought in the revolution and Wood was having none of that and what he actually said about the painting was that he had no time for anybody trying to set up an aristocracy in something that was supposed to be a republic. Mm -hmm. So that was specifically what he said and that was exactly what he's um, having fun with here by putting them in front of this iconic painting. About, which is also um, painted by a German by, American. Painted by a German American <laughs> which is actually really important and yeah. Wood was well aware of that, right? So they're mythologizing this painting by a German immigrant. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the irony. So yeah, it's so funny and it is very, very satirical. But it's also, I mean, it has got very serious um, undertones. Absolutely. It's, got, it's, he's trying it's a to political make commentary, absolutely. Yeah. A very important. And 
also I think his style is so interesting because it is much more uh, realistic yeah. and it, we're contrasting it with the precisionism that the things that we're seeing coming out with abstraction and cubism mm. but it's happening contemporaneously almost you know yeah. it's a bit after it's 32 but he's working in the same environment it's only he's, four years later right yeah. after I, after I saw the figure five and gold absolutely and so you get a sense there I think of the real um, of the of the real range of, of American experimenting and the, and the sense that you could take those techniques and you could do anything you wanted to with them and they, they, the sense of that you know the world's their oyster and there are these great artists saying okay well but that's not what I'm going to do I'm going to create my own um, my own conversation my own look my own um, uh, style my own you know um, voice from. individualism is coming through as well yeah. as these sorts of collaborative a fine exercises. old American a fine old American attribute individualism Absolutely. now listen I couldn't let you, possibly let you go without you reading me a bit of Cummings because okay. this was where we started this is where we started it should be where we resolved we'll come back to Cummings and there's a there's a kind of again a kind of funny little um, personal note here which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this which was that um, it, when I was 16 um, we in high school I was given we were all assigned um, it was called a senior thesis and it was just a big essay that we had to do and it was a really important part of our final grade so it kind of affected whether I'd get into college and that kind of thing um, our assignment was that we had to compare a painting and a poem that were from the same period in the same language and I studied Latin and my extremely pedantic professor who made us all call call him Dr. Boyle and said that um, he called us all Mr. and Miss because he said we would be called that at university and of course nobody, <laughs> nobody at university was. ever called me Miss <laughs> Churchwell. Only Dr. Boyle ever called me Miss Churchwell. And, um, and because I studied Latin he told me that I would have to compare uh, uh, the Aeneid to a kind of you know to a to some kind of Roman shard or something, and um, or you know I don't know I mean you know <laughs> the pantheon of God knows what I was supposed to do. So and of course we didn't study archaeology yeah. in high school, so I couldn't do it. Anyway, so everybody else was studying French like normal people, so they could do you know symbolism and they yeah. could do like Rambo and a nice you know a nice Renoir painting or whatever. And I was stuck with English, bastard. American English, American English at that. So I decided, and in a sense, it influenced a lot of what I would go on to do. I decided to make a virtue of necessity and I was like all right I'm gonna go all in because I can do America Good and I do understand America and I'm gonna go for it and so what I did was I ended up comparing Daughters of Revolution which is why it's a painting I'm so fond of um, to this poem that was written in the same year by E. Cummings called mm. I Sing of Olaf Glad and Big so this is an extremely angry it, it goes beyond satire because it's just angry <laughs> um, <laughs> although there is satire in it um, poem that Cummings wrote it, it it came out of his experiences in the First World War and um, in the First World War um, Americans who were conscientious objectors who were pacifists uh, were imprisoned for refusing um, to serve and indeed that would happen again in the Second World War and and, um, and later and um, Cummings became because of his experiences in the war Cummings became a pacifist and he was um, very angry um, about the treatment of um, some of the people that he saw including um, a soldier that he he knew and was aware of a soldier called Olaf who was tortured um, as a conscientious as, objector. A, as a conscientious yeah. objector having having been imprisoned he was then uh, tortured so he um, he wrote this very angry poem and as a 16 year old I was really struck by the fact that there was and not in a not in a childish way um, but that there's swearing in this Absolutely. poem and I had never I had never seen um, a poet use obscenity with such anger and rage before oh, and there's listeners Sarah is going to say I am going the to F use word. I'm going to use some bad words um, but there there is a line in it that I have used for the rest of my life um, which has become a kind of personal motto um, I wonder if we can tell which one I bet you I bet you will 
So I'm going, with your indulgence, I'm going to Please. read it. It's not a long poem. I can't wait. Um, now, of course, it's a little bit hard to read Cummings um, because of his typography and his experiments. Um, and it's worth saying, we, we mentioned earlier that he, that he likes to play with visual imagery on the page. And there's a very early on in the, in the poem, there's a moment where um, he uses the word blue-eyed and he doesn't put a hyphen there because the two E's end up looking like two eyes that are right next to each other. And oh, I, I remember as, six, <laughs> as a 16-year-old comparing that word to the little mean eyes in the, in the Daughters of a Revolution painting, which uh, I got a tick for, so I did well. And now um, we've got emojis. And exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so here, here we go. So I might fumble this a little bit because it's slightly hard to read, but I will do my best. And I haven't read this in a long time. <laughs> I sing of Olaf, glad and big, whose warmest heart recoiled at war, a conscientious objector. And if the, I, so I'm interrupting the poem to say that there's a pun there on the idea that he's an object, right, who's going to be tortured. So I'm gonna, I will not interrupt anymore to interpret. I will read it through. <laughs> I sing of Olaf, glad and big, whose warmest heart recoiled at war, a conscientious objector. His well-beloved colonel, Trig West Pointer, most succinctly bred, took airing Olaf soon in hand. But, though an host of overjoyed noncoms, first knocking on the head him, do through icy waters roll that helplessness which others stroke with brushes, recently employed anent this muddy toilet bowl, while kindred intellects evoke allegiance per blunt instruments, Olaf, being to all intents a corpse, and wanting any rag upon what God unto him gave, responds, without getting annoyed, I will not kiss your fucking flag. Straightway the silver bird looked grave, departing hurriedly to shave. But, though all kinds of officers, a yearning nation's blue-eyed pride, their passive prey did kick and curse, until for where their clarion voices and boots were much the worse, and egged the first-class privates on his rectum wickedly to tease, by means of skillfully applied bayonets roasted hot with heat, Olaf, upon what were once knees, does almost ceaselessly repeat, there is some shit I will not eat. Our president, being of which assertions duly notified, threw the yellow son of a bitch into a dungeon where he died. Christ, of his mercy infinite, I pray to see, and Olaf too, preponderatingly because, unless statistics lie, he was more brave than me, more blonde than you. Powerful stuff. And of course, it does connect with the Daughters of Revolution, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that, and, and with ideas that were on the rise in Europe in 1932, the idea that a blonde person was inherently superior to another type of person. Mm. Um, and of course, he's, and, and again, I remember as a 16-year-old taking on these ideas that saying that this is about the rise of fascism and this is about um, artists taking on the, um, the ideas of, um, of Aryan superiority, the ideas that um, were also known as Nordicism, um, the idea that if you were, you know, that you were a biological determinism of eugenicism that if you were blonde you were inherently superior to somebody else I should say that I am a blonde and that was something well it was something that was very important to me therefore to read um, that line uh, he was more brave than me more blonde than you that that Cummings is taking on the the um, assumption that there's something inherently superior or inherently braver or inherently courageous in in the soldiers who yeah. were torturing Olaf rather than Olaf and that he and that yes you know you can't say that he you can't um, claim that he wasn't one of your superior people because he was even blonde yeah. um, so up yours is basically what comes so, and, and it's about corruption it's <laughs> yeah. about it's about deep sea corruption and about torture and about war and the, the futility of it all yeah. and uh, and but at the same time like you say it is about this sort of arrogance that we see in daughters of revolution as well which yeah. is this idea of superiority yeah. of that somebody is better than another and right. therefore because of inherited mm. um, attributes rather than oh, the whole idea of America of course supposed to be that you're judged by um, as as Martin Luther King would later 
creator say um, by the content of your character, not by the color of your skin, or in mm. this case, the color of your hair. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, this has been an incredible pleasure. I could sit and listen to you all day, oh especially when you're reading Cummings. It's so much fun. I'm sitting here in the sun reading Cummings. What <laughs> cannot call this work? Um, it's pretty fantastic. An absolute pleasure. Thank you so much Thank for coming you. on the podcast. Um, if followers want to find you on Twitter, I am, I am at Sarah Churchwell um, on Twitter. And, um, yeah. You're fabulous on Twitter. Uh, Thank I you. Enjoy I have a lot of fun. Um, yeah, don't follow me on Twitter if you want to read nice things about Trump because you won't <laughs> encounter any. And your new book? My new book is called Behold America, History of America First in the American Dream. And, um, and it gets into some of these ideas as well and some of these writers. You are wonderful. Oh, thank and you, I've Nina. so enjoyed talking to I you. I have darling. enjoyed this too. We'll have to do another one soon. I'd love it. Thanks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.